2009, October 20th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 19, The Origin of Life on Earth. So yesterday, we talked about the earliest forms of life that we found on the Earth. And we've gone back as far as we can push in the geologic record, and especially spent a fair amount of time talking about the, the particular challenges of trying to push deeper and deeper into the geological record to find the first recognizable forms of life. But there's another question which is even more difficult and is going to be the subject of today's lecture, and that's the origin of life on Earth. Where did, how did life actually arise and when did it arise on Earth? And what form did it take? How did the process work? So today's lecture is going to be concentrating on our ideas about the origins of life in, on the Earth. We're going to be talking about the subject called abiogenesis. The first question is where did the raw materials of the Earth, especially the amino acids, come from? Where did the, the stuff we need to build up organic life actually emerge on the Earth? We're then going to look at two scenarios which have been proposed and which people are actively pursuing with laboratory experiments that are plausibility for what could have been the first forms of, or first proto, pre predecessors for life on Earth. One of these is referred to generically as the RNA world model, which proposes that the first cell-like function to emerge on the Earth was a self-replicating version of RNA outside of a cellular context. And then how you develop going from creating RNA to creating things that actually look like protocells. The other idea which has been put forward and is being seriously pursued in laboratory experiments is called the metabolism first model. This basically proposes that before you can have replication, you have to have catalytic chemical networks for processing energy from the surroundings, for using it to make chemistry. And that is what had to arise first before you could even start getting the much more complicated machinery of cell cells going. And finally, there are two, there's another set of ideas which we're going to just touch on briefly towards the end called exogenesis and panspermia. Normally, your book just talks about panspermia or the migration of life from elsewhere. But really, there are two separate ideas that people have proposed that says life didn't actually arise on the Earth originally. It came here from outside. This is obviously a highly speculative idea, which is why I'm going to kind of cram it at the end. So today, we're going to be looking at the question of the origin of life. So what do we expect? The first thing we should ask is, well, what do we expect for the first forms of life on Earth? If we could climb into the, the favorite uh, plot device or cheat of science fiction films, a time machine, and go back 3.85, 3.5 billion years to the very, with a microscope and everything we need to look for the first forms of life on Earth, what do we expect? Well, what we should not expect is something that looks exactly like modern-day prokaryotes. Okay, let's... We should not expect something as complex as a bacterium. Now, that may sound like a surprising statement. Complex as a bacterium. That's the simplest form of life on Earth. Yeah, the simplest form of life on Earth today, four and a half billion years after its formation. Let's look, for example, at this little cartoon of a typical bacterium. We find inside of the bacterium all those structures we've seen in prokaryotes before. We see DNA, no nucleus, but DNA coding up heredity and cell function. It tells you the, basically the operating instructions for the cell. We find that the energy is being transported and metabolized inside the cell using this catalytic ATP cycle. That, oh, maybe, for example, this might be a chlorophyllic bacteria, so it uses sunlight to make ATP, and ATP then becomes part of the energy cycle for metabolism. We find that in addition to DNA, there's RNA inside this cell. And the RNA inside this prokaryote basically mediates protein synthesis. 
the various forms of RNA. They do transcription and translation and the catalyzation of protein synthesis. All occur through the agency of RNA. DNA just carries the instructions and the hereditary information. RNA carries them out. It's kind of a surprise. People didn't know what the RNA was doing in the cell. It actually carries, it's sort of the worker bee, if you will, of the cell. We also find that all of the various cell functions work chemically through what's called enzyme catalyst, catalyzed chemistry. Chemical reactions that build the organics a cell need, if you just had those going on by say, you know, let's say we've got a, a chemical reaction that wants to take two proteins or two organic compounds and turn them into a sugar or something like that or some kind of cell wall toxin that makes the bacterium nasty. If I just took a bottle of you know, component A and a bottle of component B and mixed them together in the mad scientist lab and shook it, probably squat would happen. It wouldn't actually combine into that, into that chemical that you want to make because there's too much energy barrier to overcome. But inside of a cell, there are these special folded proteins called enzymes that catalyze that chemistry, that lower the energy barrier to that happening and make these very slow chemical reactions occur much more rapidly and efficiently. So one of the reasons why cells work the way they do and why there's so much diversity of cellular life is because of enzyme-catalyzed cell chemistry, complex folded proteins that act as mediators, catalysts, for this complex organic chemistry. And finally, even the structure of the cell itself, this sort of outer lipid membrane that, differ, that di differentiates and forms a boundary between the inside of the cell and the outside of the cell, is not just simply a bag of fats. It actually is studded with all kinds of functional proteins. There's various functional proteins that actually can form cilia and things like that. There's a tremendous amount going on. There are little molecular pumps that suck in material from the outside and other molecular pumps that expel waste. If you look at the details of a cell wall, it's not just a bag. It's really got a lot of complicated chemistry going on. So even the simplest forms of life are phenomenally complicated. So we don't expect that if I go back in the distant past on the Earth, I'm going to find anything even resembling a modern prokaryote except in basic function. Because what I see when I find prokaryotes under the microscope today on the Earth, I'm seeing something that is the product of billions of years of evolution. These things have developed these structures and evolved these structures under the um, engine, under, under the, the, the um, process of natural selection and genetic drift and all the pieces that power biological evolution on the Earth. So if I'm going to go back, I'm going to be looking for something a lot simpler. So that's the first real problem. There's no analog. I can't point to any real one bacterium or archaea and say, aha, see that? It's a living fossil, one of the fancy words you hear. It's highly unlikely because anything alive today has been subject to evolution for billions of years. And from yesterday's uh, lecture, that billions could be as much as two and a half billion years in the case of prokaryotes, or if the oldest stromatolites seem to be correct, three and a half billion years of evolution. That's a long, long time. So the problem that we're dealing with is how do we know how life arose from non-life? Ultimately, we must go back to a point where the Earth was completely devoid of life at the end of the Hadean period, we think. How did we get from non-living chemistry to living chemistry, to things that began to resemble cells? And this process has a name. It's called abiogenesis. Right. Today, life comes from life. Every single form of life we see on the Earth comes from other life in its current generations. The idea of spontaneous generation, which was there for thousands of years, is kind of sneaking back into the language, but in a very different guise than Aristotle and the rest thought. At some point, you've got to go back to when things were just organic chemicals that were not living systems. What are the requirements that we have to have to be a living system? 
Well, the requirements for the arising of of, a living system is you need raw materials to make it out of. Number one, we've learned that liquid water is very, very important to this process. We've never found a form of life on Earth that can survive in the complete absence of liquid water. CO2 seems to be very important. It's the dominant source of carbon for most of the forms of life on the planet, either dissolved into water or, or in the air. We need organics. We need some raw building blocks that can be built up into these complex organic chemicals that run the cell. And it turns out, interestingly, we need phosphates. Phosphates are essential to the backbones of DNA and RNA. Phospholipids, phosphated lipid cells, fat cells, are the fundamental components of cell membranes today. In fact, phosphates are just about everywhere within the system. They're really quite surprising. ATP, adenosine triphosphate, is the primary chemical catalyst for the engine of cells. Phosphates are abundant, phosphorus is abundant in the crust of the earth, but it not always in water-soluble and accessible form. So an interesting challenge, in the, which we're not going to go into in abiogenesis, is understanding how water-soluble phosphorus became available for chemistry. We need an energy source. Well, that actually turns out to be relatively straightforward. We're near a relatively middle-sized star, and it provides lots of sunlight on the earth. There's also a process which is very energetically favorable, which is the oxidation of inorganic compounds, things like sulfur, iron, hydrogen sulfide, hydrogen, making water, making water-like compounds, is a very efficient source of chemical energy. The reactions produce energy. So we've got raw materials and energy, but then we need to start building it into something that resembles a cell. Cells have to have boundaries. Cells have to have membranes, things that distinguish inside from outside, that organize the components so they can stay together to do their biochemical thing. You can't just simply have a soup of organic chemicals and expect that they're going to make anything. You need a mechanism for catalyzing energy utilization. You need a way to basically say, okay, I've got sunlight and organic oxidation, but you've got to have a way to use that energy, to be able to couple it into the chemical processes inside cell. That's what metabolism is all about. The world is awash in energy. How are you going to use it? And that's what a lot of the cell biochemistry is about. And finally, life is kind of pointless if you can't reproduce and pass on your particular biochemical instructions to another generation because eventually entropy is going to catch up with you and you're going to die. So if you're one-shot life that never produces any offspring, you're kind of useless from the point of view of just about everything except for the very brief period that you happen to be living. So to really cross over from non-life into life, you have to, to somehow come across a way of reproducing, of replicating, and then replicating in such a way that you pass the information on how to make that copy down to subsequent generations. Once you have reproduction and heredity, you basically have the biochemical bases for evolution. So you actually can begin development through multiple generations to become something other than, well, kind of a lipid bag full of stuff. And that's the challenge. Do we have an answer? Well, this is one of, those, one of those lectures where the answer is we don't know how life started on Earth, period. And a discussion, okay, class over. Not quite. We have some ideas. And what this lecture is going to present is what our current thinking is. These are incomplete ideas. There's a lot of problems with them. But they're showing you the directions that we're trying to push the ideas, are taking our understanding of the conditions on the early Earth, knowing what the requirements of life are like, and saying, how do I get from non-life to life? And these are just two of the basic pathways. Your book focuses on one of them. In particular, there's another one, a little bit more complicated, but give you some idea of an alternative view of that. And that's what we're looking at. 
So first, let's start with the idea of raw materials. If we look inside of, of living cells today, the primary chemical functionality of cells is carried out by proteins. Proteins are long chains of amino acids. We know that there are 20 amino acids, actually 22 now, that are essential to life. They're found in all forms of life on the Earth, at least the basic 20. 19 of those 20 are left-handed amino acids. One of them, glycine, has got no handedness at all. There's no right-handed amino acids in life, except for some real oddball stuff occasionally found in the surfaces of bacteria. But that's about it. So where did the amino acids come from? We look out into space, we see a few simple amino acids, but interstellar chemistry and things like that is only good at being able to build up molecules of a handful of carbon atoms. We need to build up much more complex structures. So one of the interesting experiments that kind of is the, the real iconic experiment in this area of how we get sort of prebiotic organic chemistry on Earth is called the Miller-Urey experiment, named for two scientists who in 1952 conducted this really wonderful little experiment about how you could make amino acids out of the primordial Earth's atmosphere and water. It was published in 1953. It's really, it's in every book on exobiology or astrobiology shows up. The idea is this. Basically, it's a world in a glass vessel. In one glass vessel, they put a mixture of what they thought the primordial Earth atmosphere was. Water vapor, methane and ammonia, hydrogen molecule, and carbon monoxide. They then set up a condenser so you could condense out the water you had a little heating source here in another flask where the water, the condensed water is then collected up and heated to make a little bit of steam so that you could put warm air back in. And you've got a basic precipitation evaporation cycle going, just like in sort of a mini ocean. So the big vessel is the ocean, or the big vessel is the atmosphere. The little vessel over here is the ocean, in quotes. And they kind of let the sucker crank. Now, if you just simply let it crank, you just get a simply a precipitation uh, evaporation cycle going, and it'd be really boring and nothing would happen. But they hooked up inside the atmosphere an electric spark generator, a sudden injection of energy. And the energy could then drive chemistry. And they let it run for about a week. Of course, if any of this stuff, which has got a lot of carbon in here, notice it's carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, forms anything interesting, it will then fall down into the trap where it can be collected and eventually get cycled through the system. What they found after a week of operation was the water turned a murky brown. And when they took that brown murky water out and analyzed it in the laboratory, what they found was amino acids and complex hydrocarbons called TARs. But they found five amino acids, of which at least a couple of them are the same left-handed amino acids found in living molecules, living, living organisms. So it was a really exciting experiment. It showed how you could go from a nasty, nasty atmosphere with a bit of water and an injection of energy, and amino acids just form in that environment. It was an amazing experiment. But there are problems with it. And some of the basic problems were subtle, not known at the time. The first of these is that their atmosphere contained a lot of methane and ammonia. But we know, in fact, that the Earth's atmosphere did not contain a lot of methane and ammonia early on. It was mostly carbon dioxide, water, and nitrogen. So they used the wrong mix. It was too hydrogen-rich, or what's called a reducing atmosphere. And so that they got a lot of hydrocarbons out of the electrical spark may not be a surprise. The second thing is, if you actually throw in carbon dioxide and nitrogen, like we expect in the primordial atmosphere, you make amino acids, but you also make things called nitrates. And when the nitrates get into solution with amino acids, it breaks down the amino acids, which kind of is a bad thing. The other thing is, they didn't get a very rich chemistry. They only got five amino acids, and only a couple of which, like glycine, were kind of interesting. They were very simple. They didn't get any complex amino acids. 
Furthermore, when they made the amino acids, they got an equal mix of left and right-handed form. For those of you chemists in the audience, that's what's called a racemic mixture. That's exactly what we don't find in nature. Nature is left-handed. It uses only, or at least certainly on Earth, life on Earth only makes, uses left-handed amino acids. In non-biogenic systems, there is a mix of left and right-handed. But in this thing, it was closer to what you find in the inorganic world rather than in, in the non-life world than in the, the living world. So that's pretty much where it stood. Oh, it was a really cool experiment. Got a lot of people thinking about how amino acids came about. But it had a lot of problems. What's interesting, and this is sort of interesting sort of a bit about how science sometimes works. Turns out Miller and company also did a second set of experiments in which instead of using this sort of idea of their incorrect idea of the primordial atmosphere, they instead injected a mixture of gases into the vessel, which was more like what you get out of a volcanic vent. They actually blew steam, heated steam, with carbon dioxide, hydrogen sulfide, and other compounds which are normally found in a modern-day volcanic eruption. Blasted that with electricity, got the samples, and never analyzed or published them. In 2008, Bada and company, a group of, of researchers in California, went into Miller's archive, got the old samples, and reanalyzed them. And what they found was a real surprise. There were 22 amino acids in them. Again, more of a racemic mixture, but a lot more rich amino acid chemistry. And a whole bunch of other really cool organic substances. So Miller had actually gotten probably maybe the correct way to get amino acids out of the atmosphere. Not this methane ammonia-rich atmosphere, which was a false atmosphere, but volcanic vents. Now, this picture over here on the right is probably one of the coolest volcano pictures ever taken. The Chaiten volcano in southern Chile erupted in May of 2008, and it ran into a thunderstorm. And this photograph shows this gigantic volcanic plume lit up with thunderbolts in a web. So we know, and certainly in terrestrial volcanoes today, lightning and volcano plumes kind of go together. They're very heavily electrically charged. So think about the early Earth. Volcanoes going off all over the place. Electrical discharges could, in fact, give you a very close to the conditions we find on, in, in volcanoes today, conditions on the early Earth. And in this very simple experiment, we find a factory for a lot of amino acids. So one of the ways in which amino acids could be on the Earth is they were made here, perhaps in lightning and volcanic plumes. We don't know that for sure, but it's really strongly suggested. It's kind of interesting. He had all this great data. He never analyzed it. It took almost 50 years for people to get around to looking it up. The other place where we find complex amino acids in the solar system turns out to be meteorites. Here's one particular example of a meteorite. It's very famous for this. called the Murchison meteorite. It fell down in Australia in 1970s, I think. No, maybe it's 60s. I'm sorry. I forget when Murchison fell. When Murchison was cracked open, it's one of those examples of what's called a, a chondrite meteorite. It's called a carbon-bearing. And remember, we mentioned chondrites somewhat earlier in the class when we talked about how the oceans would have formed. We find volatile materials inside of the chondrite meteors that have deuterium to hydrogen ratios, which are very similar to the deuterium to hydrogen ratios found in isotope ratios found in the Earth's oceans. One of the other things that was just Murchison's kind of the poster child or poster rock, if you will, for the whole idea of amino acid chemistry origin on Earth, is that Murchison contained a huge number of amino acids and other complex organic compounds. Now these things are locked deep in the interior. 
Okay, so they're not going to be contaminated by earth-like, earth-like amino acids. In fact, even the fact that it fell to earth and was sitting outside and people picked it up, you can look at the isotope ratios and the atoms that make up the amino acids and you don't find terrestrial, amino, uh, terrestrial isotope ratios, which pretty much tells you they're of extraterrestrial origin. Remember, the isotope mixtures tell you something about the chemical mix in which these elements were made and get locked in. So it's a very powerful technique. The key point of Murchison is this. Key organic compounds were already present in the material of the early solar system. This is the material out of which the Earth formed. The Murchison meteorite and things like it are 4.6 billion years old. So this is, if you will, the fossil chemistry, not fossils and life fossils, but fossil chemistry of our solar system. So maybe part of the amino acids were delivered to Earth by chondritic meteorites and by comets and other things bringing in these amino acids which are already present in the interstellar medium out of which the sun was formed. So we have two plausible sources of amino acids. We have the material out of which the sun itself formed, the very dense nebulae that stars and planetary systems form out of, and there are ways to form them in situ on Earth, for example, in just the, out of the carbon and nitrogen and hydrogen and oxygen that are present, for example, in volcanic plumes or the atmosphere itself, what you've got to give it is a little spark to get the chemistry going. Fascinating idea. So this, we have a source of raw materials and can even get to some pretty sophisticated organics. I mean, you get things like aromatic hydrocarbons containing many tens of carbons. Here's some of your complex chemistry coming in from the interstellar medium and made in the atmosphere. So those are the first pieces. You've got some raw materials, and it turns out they're relatively abundant. Now, if you've got the raw materials, now you've got to put them somewhere. You've got to make a bag. You've got to make a boundary between the inside and the outside. It turns out one of the best, simplest ways you can do this are what are called lipid vesicles. Lipids are fats, fatty acids. It turns out that they make a very simple precursor for cell membranes. This bilayer lipid membrane that we see in cells all over the Earth today, it turns out to be very natural. If I make a, f- a fluid made up of water and a bunch of fatty acids, they will begin to spontaneously form spherical little membranes. They self-assemble in liquid water. The analogy is with soap bubbles. In fact, a soap bubble is, in fact, a lipid bilayer. It's just that the heads and tails of the lipids point in opposite directions. You end up with a layer of water in the middle of the bilayer and then a layer of the fats on the outside, which is what gives the bubble some stiffness. If you immerse them in water, you get kind of an inside-out soap bubble. So you get these little lipids, lipid cells here lining up to form a bilayer. And it happens spontaneously. We can do this in the laboratory over and over again. What's beautiful about this is it really, not only can you make these things, but if you're immersed in a bath with a bunch of little balls of lipids running around because of surface tension, right? The water wants to make the pressure inside the same as is outside. It's called osmotic pressure. A lipid cell coming in puts tension on the surface. It will actually merge with the lipid bubble and the bubbles will grow bigger, just like soap bubbles grow bigger in your, in your sink. If the bubbles get too big, they start getting big and floppy and they kind of roll around into tubes. And they, What do they do? They break into smaller pieces. So natural, just natural physics. There's no life here at all. Just, just lipid barriers, lipid bubbles. And these are microscopic things, right? We're talking about things that are maybe 20 to 100 microns. Remember that a, human, a thick human hair is about 100 to 150 microns across. So we're talking about tiny little bubbles of fats. Make little spherical bags. Spherical bags that can grow in size and spherical bags that can break into two pieces, just spontaneously fissioning. These turn out to be the absolutely perfect containers for proto-life and lipids, especially phospholipids, are really easy to make. Make them all the time in nature. 
Right? Soap is lipids. Soap is basically made of fat. Well, modern synthetic soap. Real soaps originally were by rendering fat. So we got raw materials. We got organics. We got some complex carbon compounds. And we even got a convenient containers. But just because you got the stuff and just because you got the place to put the stuff does not necessarily mean that life is just going to happen. And that turns out to be the problem. How do you take the raw materials and the bags to put them in, get them together, and get them starting processes that look like life? Well, there's two basic scenarios that have been discussed. Now, there are obviously a lot of different ideas and a lot of filigrees, but we're going to lump them, a lot of those differences together into two basic ideas. The first of these is called RNA world. The idea is that RNA, ribonucleic acid, can form little tiny strings spontaneously abiotically, meaning not by biological processes, just by chemistry going on in organic rich liquids. Once you do that, RNA turns out to be ideal for being a self-replicating molecule. And so we get this idea of, of abiotic, non-life RNA becoming the precursor of life, eventually becoming the basis for life. The other idea is called metabolism first. The other aspect of living things is that they have chemical catalytic networks that are capable of metabolizing energy. They're capable of utilizing energy. People argue that making something as big as RNA is very complicated and unlikely. More likely is that you somehow set up these catalytic reaction networks that can tap into, in this case, inorganic oxidation energy and turn it into an engine for synthesizing carbon compounds. We can do this without biology. We can set up all kinds of catalytic uh, reactions in, in the lab. Could those catalytic reactions emerge in nature? Instead of happening in a glass test tube, they happen inside of a lipid bag, a lipid vesicle. That might get you going with energy processing stuff, and once you have available energy, you enable chemistry, which ultimately builds you up to RNA. If neither of these two ideas sounds like they're going to be immediately promising all by themselves, you've picked up on the right message. These are the pieces of the ideas, not the complete answer. So let's walk through them. RNA world is the idea that RNA-based life or proto-life arose first. You started with a molecule that was capable of replicating. Once you had reproduction, you had at least the, the beginnings of heredity, the beginnings of being able to make a copy, and then you just simply had to assemble the various pieces that you need to build up the biochemical machinery, if you will, of the cell. RNA is a very good candidate for this particular material, although there are other things called uh, PNAs and TNAs that people have looked at as well, but we'll still focus on RNA just for this class. RNA has some very useful properties. Here's a single strand of RNA. It has a backbone containing uh, ribos ribosome, ribose sugar and phosphates held together in a nice chain. It forms a chain or a polymer. And then attached to those, to those ribosome, ribose backbones are various nucleobase chemicals, adenine, guanine, uracil, and cytosine in a modern RNA. But there are other, th other molecules called nucleobases that could, in principle, work. It has three basic properties that are useful to us. Number one is it stores information. The order of the nucleobases contains information that could be passed on and replicated. If that, for example, in modern RNA, that sequence of nucleotides tells you amino acids that might go, for example, into protein synthesis. It catalyzes its own replication. The fact that these nucleobases fit in each other in pairs, like little locks and keys, means that you have the biochemical ability to make a copy of the RNA by matching these things up and then unzipping it. The final thing is, and this is something we haven't discussed as much, 
RNA inside of cells acts like a kind of catalyst, just like in the same way that a folded protein acts like a catalyst. An RNA molecule does not stay one long string, but in fact folds up into a complex three-dimensional shape. Some of those complex three-dimensional shapes can in fact take on catalytic functions. They're not terribly efficient compared to modern proteins, but they can do it. They're called in modern cells ribozymes, and in fact, um, in part for the study of certain classes of ribozymes or RNA-like catalytic compounds is in fact what got this year's Nobel Prize in Medicine, the so-called telomeres. So this is obviously a very active area of research in biology. Enzymes can actually be, they can be enzyme-like in their behavior. They can be catalytic. So the thing is, we've got a wonderful candidate that has a lot of the functionality we need chemically. We haven't got life yet. But the problem is, how do you make RNA? How do you make strands out of all these pieces? There's an awful lot of chemistry here that's got to go on in an awful lot of steps. Well, it turns out that some of it may not be as difficult as you think. Things like the Miller-Urey experiment, the very rich chemical mixtures that would be found in, in, in liquid water on the early Earth, people are finding in the laboratory that there are combinations that can lead to the formation of nucleotides, formation of phosphated um, um, molecules, formation of things that look an awful lot like nucleotides. In fact, in the Murchison meteorite, one of the things found in there is uracil, which is, in fact, the U in RNA, coming in in a 4.6 billion year old meteorite. It's not terrestrial in origin, because the isotopes are all wrong, as far as the Earth is concerned. So you can make these things, they're actually fairly simple as molecules go, and they can be made in nature abiotically. We've been shown that in the laboratory. The problem is, how do you get them? Okay, now you got the pieces, but how do you make them into a chain? That's a trick, and that's actually one of the real sticky points in this model. One of the ideas that's been bouncing around for a while is clays, long sheets of minerals that basically form in sedimentary rock. Clays are actually very useful surfaces for catalyzing surface chemistry. They provide places for the various molecules to get together, and they act as kind of like a catalyst. They provide a place for chemical energy to be dumped and allowing things to get together in an organized way. That's how you build chains, is by laying down pieces. If you're floating in the water, it's kind of hard to imagine the chains forming. But if you can lay it down and stick, a, stick something on a table, bring another one in on a clay, stick another one on the end, you hold them together. You basically hold the chain down in the clay while you assemble it piece by piece. The way I like to think about it is imagine trying to assemble a tinker toy just in the air as opposed to assembling a tinker toy on a tabletop. It's a lot easier on the tabletop when you have some place for something to sit and stick. And that's the basic idea behind the clays. Clays have a lot of interesting properties that way that people use in, in biological and non-biological ways. So people have come up with plausible arguments for how you could build the RNA. So let's just now take as given. Obviously, there's a lot of research going into how you make the RNA. Once you get RNA, well, you still haven't got life. How do you get there? Well, the idea is that it starts with those free-floating spherical vesicles made out of lipids. They're really easy to make. They tend to basically be bags, and they make a bag of whatever dirty junk of water they happen to form around. So let's say you start getting around where you form them with various organic molecules, maybe a little string of, of RNA. RNA is pretty fragile stuff. You can't make very long strings, maybe tens of nucleobases, not the thousands or millions of nucleobases like we find in DNA. So RNA is pretty fragile. So you get a little short thing in there, and RNA has this wonderful capability of self-replicating. So by putting the RNA inside of a bag, you've protected it from the outside, and you give it a place to work undisturbed from the rest of the environment and you give it some of the raw material it might need. 
If it's cool enough, you might actually form a double strand of RNA. Not very long. We're not talking like DNA kind of double strands, but it does form little double helixes. They're fragile, but they work. If you warm it up, however, that strand comes apart. Well, gee, I can form a strand and then I can take it apart again just by cooling or heating the material. So imagine one of these vesicles containing RNA is kind of sitting in a pond. It's maybe got a little bit of ice on top, a little bit warm on the bottom where there's a volcanic vent. And you set up circulation currents or convection currents in the water so that the lipid balls are alternately being cooled off near the surface and heated up near the bottom. So you get this sort of external input and removal of energy. So when you're up near the top of the pond, it's cool enough to be able to form these little stable short strings of double-stranded DNA. You copy yourself. And then you get swept down to the warm water and you come apart. And then you reform and you come apart. But remember, the lipid vesicle is slowly growing. If the lipid vesicle grows up and eventually splits, and it happens to split during one of those cycles where you've just broken up, then two copies will end up in the two halves. Now, of course, you end up as a random copy plus other stuff, a huge number of errors. So we're not talking about DNA splitting and heredity like we have in a modern cell. But you have sort of an externally driven metabolism. There's no internal chemical metabolism. You have externally driven processes that power the com combination, replication, and division of the RNA. It's going to be slow. It's going to be inefficient. We've got a few billion years to work with. Now, as you begin to build up the chemical mix, evolution is going to start to play a role. What evolution does, and generally speaking, this is any form of evolution in, in a physical system or a chemical system, is if you find yourself in an energetically favorable place, you're going to do more, right? If you've got a slow, inefficient process, it's going to take you a long time to do stuff and you're just going to make mistakes left and right. But what if you suddenly get into a really efficient chemical groove? You can do a lot quickly. So what efficiency means is you can go through a lot of changes very fast. And that's what fav evolution favors, is things that change in ways that give you advantages. In this case, an evolutionary advantage. Or in this case, an energetic advantage. Turns out that if you make a long enough strand of RNA, eventually it folds up. And if you fold up into something resembling a ribozyme, a ribozyme, which are these RNA-like enzymes, you suddenly now add, instead of just simply external heat and cold cycles fueling the catalyzation of replication, you actually now have ribozymes getting in there and doing their thing, catalyzing the chemistry. So now you take need less energy to actually do the replication. And in fact, once you form ribozymes, you don't need the heat and cold cycles anymore because the ribozyme picks up the work. It's much, much faster and more efficient than randomly waiting for your little vesicle full of junk to come in to cycle between warm and cold areas. So once you form a ribozyme, anything that can form a ribozyme suddenly has an extremely efficient channel for replication. Furthermore, some of the ribozymes that people have formed in the laboratory actually begin to start showing signs of energy metabolism, energy utilization. So now you've got chemical machinery that the cell can make its own energy and speed up its own replication. It now becomes more and more independent of the environment. But it's still not life yet. Eventually, you start building up with more efficient chemistry longer and longer strings of RNA. You don't have to be dependent on the fragility of RNA to having just right conditions in your environment. You can now begin to take advantage of the superior replication properties of ribozymes to make more complex RNA.
eventually you're going to make a string of RNA that in the presence of amino acids, which are floating all over the system, you begin to protein synthesize proteins. So you build little proteins, yeah, boring proteins, but eventually you build a big enough protein that folds up and all of a sudden, ooh, now it's a protein that's capable of enzymatic chemistry. Ribozymes are efficient, protein enzymes are even more efficient. So when you finally emerge to the point that you begin to get proteins folding into efficient enzymes, the biochemistry begins to take off. Because now an extremely efficient way of doing things. It's like basically the difference between digging a field with your hands, digging your field with a small stick, digging a field with a shovel, digging a field with a fully equipped John Deere tractor. Same job, it's going to happen a lot quicker if you got the right chemical machinery. Once this transition occurs, once these things start making proteins, the range of chemistry suddenly opens way up. You get very efficient forms of metabolism. You can actually begin to start making even more of the cell functions be taken over by protein chemistry, and the RNA is just simply the set of instructions. The final step is when the proteins begin to f actually begin to form the catalyze the formation of DNA, just like they do in modern cells, although in a smaller strands of DNA to start with. DNA has a number of wonderful advantages. It's way, way more stable than RNA and can form these beautiful long double helixes that RNA cannot do. RNA can only do that for short strands. It's an extremely efficient replicator, and as we've seen before, it's a very error-free replicator, which means the fidelity of your copies starts going way the heck up. Once you make clean, unmutated copies of yourself, you now can start multiplying those structures massively into the environment. Once you start developing DNA in the centers of these protocells, the RNA falls back as the messenger and transcriber and some of the protein synthesis roles. DNA completely takes over the instruction and heredity. When you do that, that's when these protocells become prokaryotes. So that's the story. That's the, in, in a nutshell. If you start out with a self-replicating molecule and you start moving up to where you begin to get more and more energetically favorable mechanisms for performing the chemical stuff going on. Eventually, you cross some line, and it's not going to be some easily defined line, where all of a sudden you're a self-replicating, self-feeding biochemical machine. In other words, you're a prokaryotic cell. As you begin to build the proteins, the proteins work their way out into the membrane, start building the bigger functions, and away you go. Life, poof, takes off. And we certainly see in the fossil record, once prokaryotes get going with DNA, boom, diversity and frequency of life goes way up. The appearance of stromatolites, the appearance of the microfossils during the um, periods of the Proterozoic and the late Archaean period. So that's what RNA world is all about. You start with a replicator, you start with basic machinery, and basically the fact that the more energetic and more efficient your machinery becomes, the more you make, you basically get a nice little runaway evolutionary process. Well, that's one of the stories. The other one is called Metabolism First. Metabolism First proposes that, in fact, making these gigantic RNA molecules is unlikely. There's a problem for making them abiotically because there's so many steps involved. One of the ways you could short-circuit that, people think, is you start out by first catalyzing energy utilization. Find a way to get the power source inside the bag and not rely on the slow process, say, of you know, 
frozen pond circulation or whatever else people use to try to get those first RNA pre-cells. So the alternative is you start with a catalytic chemical network that can process carbon dioxide into other stuff. Here's just a cartoon of one over here on the right. You take CO2 and hydrogen, go through a catalytic process, which is kind of like the citric acid cycle in modern creatures, and you come out with acetate and water. So you start with raw materials and you end up with a different carbon compound. It's pretty simple and stupid, but in fact, acetates and water are important components of building up heavier and heavier carbon chemistry. It's catalytic in the sense that it runs in the cycle, which doesn't consume the basic piece that's actually making the chemistry go. The energy source you can grab is abundant. It's the oxidation of, of inorganic materials. You don't need to worry about something as complex as chlorophyll coming along for photosynthesis. Start simple. Oxidation of iron produces a lot of energy. Oxidation of sulfur produces a lot of chemical energy all by itself in a very simple way. So you get these various cycles going, and if they're going out in the, in the primordial soup of the oceans or pond, they're going to quickly run into side reactions and fall apart. They're not going to be self-sustaining. And then again, here's where our good buddies, the lipid vesicles, come in. Imagine you trap one of these networks with its raw materials inside the bag. Now you've got a way to contain it and, and basically self-propagate this catalytic network. I'm not going to go into as much detail with this as I will with RNA World because it's a lot more complicated. This is a cartoon taken out of a Scientific American article by Robert Shapiro of New York University who's one of the primary proponents of the metabolism first idea. The basic picture is as follows. You end up with molecule, organic molecules and minerals in organics that provide oxidation provides the energy source. And you contain one of these things inside of one of these lipid, lipid vesicles. The lipid vesicle, if you will, wraps up some dirty pond water or dirty ocean water, and you get whatever bag of garbage you happen to get. In fact, Freeman Dyson, the physicist, refers to this as garbage bag world. So you get your little lipid baggie full of dirty water containing minerals and mo molecules, and one of these combinations happens to be one of these very simple catalytic networks. You oxidize the mineral, produce some energy, and you couple that energy into a carbon-based metabolism cycle. We see these carbon-based metabolism cycles in nature. The problem is when you start them, they quickly come apart when they're in the open. The idea of the lipid bag is it contains it and keeps it from coming apart and getting taken down by side reactions. That's actually one of the big objections to the metabolism first idea is how you knock down the side reactions that would normally take these networks apart. These networks are as fragile in many ways as the RNA are fragile in their chemical function. And those are the two real big flaws in both these pictures. But let's just follow this scenario through. So you basically take an energy source, or common, no one disputes that organic, inorganic oxidation is important. Couple that into the so-called driver reaction that drives your catalytic cycle, and the catalytic cycle makes carbon compounds. Just like the citric acid cycle, for example, does today. Now, because you have the raw materials inside the bag and you can transport some of this material in there as well as lose some of the stuff by diffusion out of the bag, you can eventually grow this chemical network because you can bring in raw materials, you can bring in fresh inorganics, you can bring in oxygen or oxygen, oxygen carrying atoms for oxidation. So you have this potential for growth. This, the lipid membranes are somewhat permeable and you can get rid of your junk. Eventually, your lipid barriers, which are growing in size, by the way, through the same process that we see the bubbles grow in water, eventually are going to reach the point where they become unstable and they split apart. 
Now, they don't divide like cells. This has not got a genome with instructions where two separate copies go into the two separate halves. Instead, what you have is this chemical machinery gets distributed among them. It's what's sometimes referred to as a um, compositional genome. Instead of being a bag of ordered chemical tools, it's just the bag of tools broken up. And then what you kind of hope for, and this is, again, this is one of the sort of, you just need that extra little step, is that you end up with, if you have a very, very efficient catalytic mechanism, one that actually is capable of being fairly robust and surviving, is not as easily broken up by side reactions, then those, you'll end up with replicating that machinery. Kind of messy, but you'll replicate the catalytic machinery. If it's efficient, it will survive. It will last. Okay, you can make a crappy machine and it falls apart. You're not going to get many of those. But if you happen to come across a really good one, if a really nice network sets itself up, it will start becoming the most common form of the network. Something like this is then thought to be what you get, giving you the sort of protocellular conditions. Once you have the energy source and you have the catalytic networks, the catalytic networks can grow more and more complicated, and eventually you start building up the machinery of things like RNA, PNAs, and things like that, and you kind of slide into the RNA world picture. All these ideas have their problems. Okay, I'll be first to admit it, we don't have all the answers, but this shows you the directions that people are thinking. Look for processes that occur in nature. Look for ways to organize those processes. How do those processes self-replicate and self-propagate? Eventually, the idea is you will end up tipping over the balance into something which is truly self-organizing and self-replicating, which we call life. The final idea is that called exogenesis or panspermia, is life arose elsewhere and you seeded on Earth. This is the most I want to say about this idea. It doesn't have a lot of support because what it does, it doesn't solve the problem. It just moves it somewhere else. It says, oh, oh, life already arose here as DNA and everybody's happy it rose so quick. But that means that life had to get started abiotically somewhere else. You're kind of throwing the question out to the side. Your book spends a lot of time on this. I don't think much of it. And that's all I'm going to say about it. At least for now, we'll actually pick this up a little bit later when we talk about life in the universe at large. Any questions? Okay. See you all tomorrow then.